I was really encouraged by it, especially with deliberate practice. There's a warning and there's a promise, right? The warning mm -hmm. is if you preach for 30 years, it doesn't necessarily mean you've, you're much better than you were at 25 because you can kind of get into a complacent or fixed mindset. But it's also good news, so that's the warning. The good news is if you've only preached for two years or 10 years, it doesn't mean that you can't preach or doesn't mean that you're not growing at a great level. This is Matt Woodley with Monday Morning Preacher, a ministry of PreachingToday.com and Christianity Today. And one of the things that I'm fascinated about, intrigued by, and motivated by is how do preachers continue to grow as a preacher and not get stuck? So I'm going to be talking today with Dr. Jared Alcantara. And uh, Jared, it is great to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Matt. It's great to be with you, and it's good to, good to see you again. Be good to hear your voice again. Thanks so much for having me. Folks, if you don't know Jared, he's an associate professor of preaching and holder of the Paul W. Powell Endowed Chair in Preaching at Truett Theological Seminary at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. He's also the author of a number of books, uh, including a book that came out in 2019 and just recently came out in Spanish called The Practices of Christian Preaching, Essentials for Effective proclamation. Jared, you've been doing a lot of writing lately. It's great to see you just engage with uh, preachers like that. So thanks for your service to the church. Oh, well, uh, the pleasure's all mine. It's a joy to have a writing ministry and to impact the growth and uh, impact the flourishing of preachers. So that's my joy and my pleasure to be a part of it. Well, I know you've written two books about a preacher that we've featured here on Preaching Today, a guy named Dr. Gardner Taylor who has been called the Prince of Preachers, right, in America. And uh, so tell us about who is he and what are the, one of the biggest lessons or twos that you learned from Dr. Taylor? That's a great question. And uh, I, I don't know if this uh, will be my only question because I could go on and on. <laughs> well, you've written two books on the guy. So. <laughs> but Dr. Taylor was born in 1918 by periodicals, by surveys, he has been voted by, by many different venues. He's been voted one of the one of the best preachers of the English-speaking world in the 20th century. Born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, came to New York in 1948 and had a 42-year pastorate at Concord Baptist wow. Church and was a key leader in civil rights, was a mentor to Martin Luther King Jr. and other civil rights leaders and supported the movement, but was considered really a preacher's preacher. He was mobilizing community ministry, like the church was able to build tenement buildings and build a school and a credit union, especially since African-Americans in New York didn't have access to loans because of all kinds of reasons. But he was considered by his peers, by those who came after him, even by those who were older than him as a preacher's preacher, voted number one preacher in various magazines, periodicals like Ebony Magazine, Time Magazine, called him the Dean of the Nation's Black Preachers. I was really fascinated with his ability to cross over into lots of different context situations. So his ability to navigate racial, ethnic, ecclesial difference, even international difference, preached in Tokyo mm. and Johannesburg and Sao Paulo, Brazil, all over the place. But he was able to be at home and himself at a black church in Brooklyn, New York, and also to be at home and himself when he was preaching for the National Radio Bible Pulpit Hour which went out across the nation. And so I was fascinated by that ability to be improvisational. So my first book on him was called Crossover Preaching. So those proficiencies, I think, are needed now more than ever in an intercultural church with an intercultural future. 
And then my second book was some real practical lessons that every preacher can take away. So the first one was real technical. That was the dissertation. The second one was much more practical. Like, what are some lessons we can learn from this preacher in particular? So um, like any preacher, I'll resist the urge. You gave me two, so I have to give you more. But uh, the the book was laid out as uh, we can learn about how pain can form us as preachers, the importance of having a redemptive focus eloquence that's still tied biblically, a biblically informed eloquence, apprenticeship, you know, having a Paul in our life, a Timothy who we can mentor, contextualization. Taylor was really, really good at knowing how to contextualize. And then holiness, uh, a commitment to uh, loving God, serving God, yielding one's life to the Holy Spirit. So I did my best to uh, keep it brief. So that was the best I could on Dr. Taylor. Maybe we need a whole podcast on this, you know, because <laughs> I didn't read your the crossover preaching one, but I did read the other book is a really, really fine book. And listeners, if you go to preachingtoday.com and check out some of the resources we have from Dr. Taylor, he's got a phenomenal talk in there called uh, Can These Bones Live, yeah. uh, which is a great talk, I think, at the EK Bailey Conference about preaching. So, so Jared, you and I started a friendly conversation because I wrote a newsletter for Preaching Today about becoming what I called a boneheaded preacher. I got that phrase from a guy named Atul Gawande, who most preachers haven't heard of because he's not a preacher. He's actually a neurosurgeon, and uh, he's written some books on practicing medicine, and he talks about how surgeons need to be, and I quote, boneheaded enough to stick at practicing day and night for years on end at being a surgeon, Uh, and that's what makes a good surgeon. And you wrote back and said, yeah, that's good. I agree with that, but you can't just practice as a preacher. You need to practice deliberately is what you said. So there's a whole thing around deliberate practice, right? I mean, you didn't just make that up. So what is deliberate practice? Good question. Good question. And I think that that surgeon was onto something pretty important. So the the sense of being boneheaded, the person who used that word, he was probably gesturing to what deliberate practice is about, which is this relentless ongoing commitment to growth. So Carol Dweck talks about the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. A growth mindset is a relentless desire to get better, to grow, to take risks. Uh, You don't want to take too many risks as a surgeon (laughs) that are uninformed, Uh, but take risks means to push yourself to, to get better at things that you might not be as good at yet. So deliberate practice really is about uh, not just practicing in in a way where you practice hard or try hard. It's also about uh, practicing differently or trying differently. So this came out of Kay Anders Erickson and his research on deliberate practice. He was considered the expert on experts. So he studied chess masters and violinists and ballerinas. And what he came to see is that at these levels of excellence in these fields, everybody tried hard. But then there was a group of people that tried differently. And that's what he was really interested in. If you don't push yourself to try differently, then he argued a level of automaticity can set in where you actually start to have diminishing returns. So you could be a doctor for 20 years and actually not be as good as doctor as you were at 15 years if you don't practice differently. Automaticity. What a word. I know, a scholar word. Sorry, I had to drop yeah, one what in. does that mean, man? Pack, <laughs> unpack that for us. Automaticity. I think I know what it means, but I have never used that word in a sentence. All right. Well, that's, so. an, that's an Erickson word. Uh, what he's getting at there is you can turn into a rhythm where you might normally do things a certain way, but it doesn't push you out of your comfort zone. 
So you mm. do things the same way, and that can be good, like for an athlete where they're no longer thinking about their golf swing or batting swing or fill in the blank. There's a desire to think in such a way that you're no longer comfortable. That's the willingness mm. to take risks. That's the willingness to push yourself out of your comfort zone. So that's what Erickson means by uh, automaticity can set in if we're not careful. Okay. And who is this guy again? And what he's a, is he a psychologist or is he uh what, what's the background on this guy? Well, he, uh, his name's Kay Anders Erickson. He passed away in 2020 and some of his original studies were published more than 30 years ago. Now, Malcolm Gladwell picked up his work in talking about the 10,000 hour rule, uh-huh. but even yep. there, Erickson wanted to push back and say, if you work for 10,000 hours on something, but do not do so deliberately, then mm. you aren't necessarily going to to master something or become excellent at something. So he really wanted okay. to offer that very, very important nuance. And so the popularization of the work is called Peak with his researcher, Robert Poole. And they talk about four commitments, which I can get into if you like. I've already mentioned some, the willingness to take risks, constructive feedback. So having people in your life who are able to speak into your preaching. Focused attention is being more attentive to what you're doing while you're doing it and concrete goals. And so specific concrete goals in which you work to improve. So when violinists did that, when ballerinas did that, when chess masters did that, et cetera, et cetera, he saw a pushing beyond the expectations or limits that normally one would one set for himself or herself. Okay. So you're, you're, um, walking into preaching now. So um, yeah. so unpack a little more what you've learned about this deliberate practice and the life and craft of preaching. Great question. So all four of those commitments that I just mentioned, those all show up in yeah. my classroom. So I'm inviting students to be involved in feedback loops. I'm inviting students to pay more attention to what they're doing while they're doing it. And then also to engage in reflection on what they did when they did it. So they're listening to themselves, watching themselves, the recordings of their sermons and learning to pay attention more to what they're doing while they're doing it. So they might think that they were really serious, but they didn't come across that way. They might think that they were really slow, but they came across as speaking really fast. So that's knowledge. That's wisdom that helps us grow. Concrete goals. They set goals for themselves in order to improve. And then willingness to take risks. What that can look like for a preacher is we might settle into only the epistles. We might settle into preaching with notes when a risk might look like preaching without notes. So there's various ways that we might settle into what's most comfortable to us. But if we get too comfortable, then we, we could become complacent and not push ourselves. We get that fixed mindset, to use Dweck's phrase, instead of that growth mindset as preachers. So what's great about that is all four of those commitments can follow a person after they graduate. So it's not like it just applies mm-hmm. in the classroom. It applies in a regular weekly preaching as well. I love this, Jared, because I firmly believe that preachers can keep growing and you don't have to be the same preacher you were two years ago, and we should keep growing. And so let's zero in. Let me zero in on one of those in particular, and that is the feedback. I think sometimes as preachers, we have a really hard time getting constructive feedback that's honest, but it's not like overly critical. So how do how do we go about eliciting that from people? You know, just the average preacher. 
That's a great question. I mean, I can speak to some of the things that I have done and continue to do. So I invite other colleagues who preach regularly to ask me what they think of a sermon that I preach so I could send them a link, send them a video and say, what do you see? What do you hear? What do you notice? That's one area. So who's a person in your life who could either, let's say they live far from you, they could hear something that you've preached and offer you what they hear. So there's the collegial level. There's also the layperson level, because sometimes I'm thinking of Ian Pitt Watson's phrase in his book, Preaching a Kind of Folly. He says that preachers are good at speaking the language of Canaan, but most people speak the language of Babylon. And preachers Mm. need to learn to speak better Babylonian. So there's the level of the layperson, too, because when we only solicit feedback from our colleagues, they might be used to the language they speak and that we speak. And that's different than what people who might be lay people might hear. So when I was preaching at my church, we've served at several different churches. Sometimes I'd solicit feedback through a team or an individual. So there'd be the feed forward team that I would sometimes sit down with and we talk about the sermon ahead of time. There's inductive Bible study. Even as people notice things, even if you've studied the text that you don't notice, that can be instructive. And then the feedback would be lay people. I I would let people rotate because if they're always evaluating my sermons, they don't have space to just be present and worship God. So opportunities for people to even in just a written feedback form or a sit down with me afterward. When I was preaching multiple services between services, I would Mm -hmm. uh, ask uh, someone on staff, what did you notice? What did you hear? Are there ways that I could be clearer here or did I go too long? So that information, it it can be tough at the time because we feel vulnerable after we preach, but it's all for the desire to reach people and eliminate obstacles that would prevent the gospel from being heard. So let's talk about like the goal setting. Give us some examples of what would a a goal look like in preaching? Give us a couple examples. Good question. I think we pay attention to the things we're good at. We pay attention to the things that we could do better at. Sometimes we only center our goals on the things we could do better at, but I would argue that we need to center our goals on both. So there's that phrase, maximize your strengths too. So if you're a really good storyteller, become a better one. Hmm. If you have a poetic intuition, like you're, you're wise about how to carefully craft and artfully craft language, then go deeper in it. So there's the maximizing our strengths and working on our weaknesses. So a concrete goal might be that we have a tendency to run five to 10 minutes longer (laughs) than we're supposed to Uh. all the time. So trying to work on how we manage our time. Another possibility could be that if we're a big idea preacher, just because it's clear to us doesn't mean that it's clear to everyone. So when we evaluate or interrogate our previous sermons and let others do the same, Uh, as to whether or not they got the main point or whether or not after looking back, we sense they did, then that can be a concrete goal too. I see this in the classroom all the time that students might be talking about the gospel, but they look like they're not happy about it. Mm. Or they're smiling when talking about judgment because they're an affable person. (laughs) You know, they're friendly. (laughs) It's like, no, I think that's really bad news (laughs) that you're talking about right now. (laughs) So, uh, So sometimes a concrete goal can look like bringing those two into greater congruence. 
So those are just some things. A concrete goal can be, I'm going to push myself to preach without notes. Ah, great. It can be any of those kinds of things where we can simultaneously set a goal and take risks in order to grow. So you tell this story about Tim Keller, which I did not know, which is really fascinating. So he said himself, right, that during his seminary, he received and he said, I deserved a C in preaching. So that would shock a lot of people. (laughs) He got a C in preaching. But then uh, his first nine years in ministry, he delivered over 1,500 expository sermons, as you mentioned, in Man... No, no, it's not in Manhattan yet, right? He was in maybe in Virginia, I think. Yes, before before Manhattan, he was in Virginia at this uh, church. So tell us, how did he practice, how did deliberate practice lead him to become a better preacher? Because this is a good, uh, an encouraging story for all of us. Yes, well, as you're mentioning Tim's story, Dr. Keller's story, I also thought of a former professor of mine at Gordon Conwell, Gordon Hugenberger, who his first church was in Gloucester, and he preached his first sermon on a textual variant in the Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> I just finished up at Cambridge or Oxford and was this committed Hebrew scholar. And for some reason, what woke him up in the morning and got him excited didn't get these fishermen in Gloucester. I wonder why. That wasn't interesting. Yeah. So for Tim Keller, I think early in his ministry, uh, perhaps he was used to thinking and communicating at 30,000 feet when he preached in preaching class. Uh, Of course, I wasn't there. I haven't seen the sermon, but my guess would be that there was probably a lot of that. And then he got into a church setting and he started listening better to people. Mm. He started connecting biblical exposition with pastoral care and leadership. He started paying attention to their stories. He started baptizing people and marrying people and burying people and started bringing these these elements together. So now it's 30,000 feet and Mm -hmm. sea level. It's abstract, and it's the neighborhoods in which we live. And so when I learned that story, I was really encouraged by it, especially with deliberate practice. There's a warning and there's a promise, right? The warning mm. is, if you preached for 30 years, it doesn't necessarily mean you've, you're much better than you were at 25, because you can kind of get into a complacent or fixed mindset. But it's also good news, so that's the warning. The good news is, If you've only preached for two years or 10 years, it doesn't mean that you can't preach or doesn't mean that you're not growing at a great level. And so that's what happened is the repetition of preaching on a regular basis to a community, finding ways to reach people for the sake of the gospel, loving people, a desperation Mm -hmm. to reach people and love them better. And then just that continual rhythm of preaching more and more and more. Terry Francona, who was coach of the Birmingham Barons when Michael Jordan was there, said if Jordan had had, you know, 10,000 more swings, he might have made it in Major League Baseball. Uh So uh, so the opportunity to have the, you know, experience does matter. The repetition does matter. But I I find that story really, really hopeful because he turned out okay. Tim Keller did. He turned out all right as a preacher. I think so. This is really good, Jared. I'm just thinking in my own life, you know, one of the things I'm working on is is actually connecting with people more on a heart level, you know, especially in my application. That's one of the things I'm working on. And with just more gravitas, speaking to the heart. How about you? You preach on this, you teach on this deliberate practice. How's what's going on in your deliberate practice? 
Yeah, well, you mentioned heart to heart. I thought of a friend of mine, uh, Newt Larson, who talks about the hearts of preaching. There's the heart of God. There's the heart of the scriptures through the heart of the preacher to the heart mm. of the people. Right? Yeah, and, good. And there's this opportunity to, to bring hearts together, if you will, when we preach. With me, I'm really noticing a couple of things, a couple of areas in which I'm really trying to grow. I would say, first and foremost, I'm trying to grow in my prayer life. Hmm. Uh, I mentioned in the practices of Christian preaching that there are these dialectics, and one of them would be prayer and study. And usually we're really much better at one than we are at the other. So that's just one of those, you know, there's uh, others, but prayer and study. I love to read books. So sometimes if I get stuck somewhere, uh, my immediate instinct is to read another one. But perhaps what I need more of is more direct communication with the Lord, more yielding, more uh, opportunities to bring this to God. So when I'm stuck to let let God work it out, work me out, show me what he wants to show me. So I think that's one area that's great. is growing in my prayer before I preach, in the days leading up, in the moments leading up, and then even now trying to be more present to God while I preach. So seeing preaching not as some kind of performance where I do something that makes everybody go, wow, what a what a preacher or something. For me, it's being present to God so that I can pastor people and engage in worship and so that this will not just be a textual event, but a spiritual event in my own life. Mm. So I'd say that's that, you know, that area of prayer before and during. And then also just growing in finding ways to uh, get application as close as possible to the people to whom I'm preaching. So now that I'm an itinerant, I find myself in little rural churches. I find myself in Latino, Latina churches, black churches, white Baptist churches, all kinds of different churches. And I might not know the people very well. I can do my part to know them better. And I can do my part to think contextually about what application might look like and sound like for them. Yeah. I love this, the the spirit of this whole thing, because it's just this openness, like I'm not done as a preacher. And it's it's not like some onerous burden, but it's more like, it's exciting. It's an adventure. It's kind of like, I got more to learn. I got more ways to grow. And and that that should be really, actually really fun. And I hear the the energy and joy in you as you talk about this. So I just think that's the kind of spirit we bring to this. So Jared, I got one more question for you. We're hopefully coming out of COVID, you know, things are hopefully going to get better, but a lot of pastors are are tired, they're burnt out. And then, so I hear that. And then I hear on the other hand, can't do church the way we used to. It's got to be new. It's got to be something new. So how can weary preachers adapt to the new realities? You know, I know that's a big question, but could you give us any kind of word of encouragement as we enter into this new world? And yet a lot of us are tired. Yeah. It's a a very challenging time, and we're all touched by COVID in some some way, connected to us in some way. And so there's the there's that element of not necessarily having time to to mourn or to lament in ways that we could or should. I think for me, there are lots of things like uh, a lot of preachers are learning how to engage in preaching in in a in a digital medium if they haven't done that before, and paying attention to things like 
well, if there's poor sound or poor video or distractions that would prevent people. So I think that's actually make, made people more attuned to all of the various obstacles and hurdles that could prevent a, a fresh hearing of God's word preached. So there's the practical things of, of leaning into, growing into, having a growth mindset with various uh, new media forms of communicating as preachers and what would have to change? How would we have to adapt? How would we have to contextualize? So that's the very practical piece. But I would say in our weariness, uh, I'm reminded of of something Leslie Newbigin said when he was bishop of the church in South India. A journalist asked him, you know, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the church in South India? And he said, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what he went on to say, the gospel is not something about which to be optimistic or pessimistic, it's the news of an event. The real question is, do we believe it or do we not believe it? So when we think about our preaching, like, this is true, this is real, mm-hmm. this, no matter, you know, COVID comes, COVID goes, it's touched everyone, it's painful, it's hard. This is a season that we're, you know, we feel like we're sojourning, we feel like huh. we're suffering, we feel like we're tired and we're weary. At the same time, the news of the event has not changed. We believe it. We proclaim it. We believe that only God makes dry bones live. Only God turns hearts of stones into flesh. But we also believe that we get to be news anchors for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So even in the sojourn, even in the suffering, through the miraculous event of preaching, James Earl Massey called it the burdensome joy of preaching. Uh, through, Through the burdensome joy of preaching, God, through news anchors for the gospel of Christ, makes dry bones live and makes hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And so so I just want to inject a little reminder, a hopeful reminder to us that uh, even though so much has changed, nothing has changed. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, thanks, Jared. That's a great word of encouragement. So uh, I've been talking with uh, Dr. Jared Alcantara um, from Truett Theological Seminary and author of the one of his books, The Practices of Christian Preaching, published by Baker Academic. Jared, it's been so great to have you with us. Thank you so much, Matt. It's a joy to be with you again and a joy to spend some time together. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so preachers, I just encourage you, just uh, based on what Jared said, just ask the Lord to give you a fresh wind of his Holy Spirit who can make the dry bones live again. Uh, Ask him to give you just a growth mindset and a joy in that, not a threat to that, not shame around that, but just a growth mindset in the Lord. So thanks for joining me, Matt Woodley with Monday Morning Preacher.